our priority here is Jesus, right? And and we're here following him, and we're going to be disciples of Jesus in the school of St. John Hughes. we're going to be part of the school, part of the spiritual family, the retreat yesterday was, was really good about bringing out when you enter into a school, you kind of come into it gradually, and it's more through just living together that, that you come to be a disciple of Jesus. So the praying, talking to Jesus, and living together in this school is much more important than what's going to happen here. <laughs> and anything. Than anything. We're doing this because when you're in a family, you share a culture. You know the same songs. You have the same inside jokes. You tell the same stories. So the idea here is to get us started on having common stories. So a lot of, especially today, it's bringing stuff out of the French stories that everybody knows Mm -hmm. and actually putting them into English. Make sense? So since the goal is to make it our stories, I'm starting off by talking, but it should be interactive, and it should be. We don't have any kind of hurry that we're in, so. Puts the whole thing into context. Yeah. Yeah. So... The second piece is in the very early versions of the plan today was going to be St. John Newt's biography. But you already know the biography. We all know. So I tried to pull out something that would be edifying for all of us, some, a new story. Um, and it puts us in the context of <laughs> where everyone else is coming from when they hear of St. John Newt's, mm-hmm. right? So nobody knows him. Yeah. And there's a very good set of reasons why and as I was going through it there was this real sense of providence, okay, God wants St. John Eudes today and there's so much that he wrote 400 years ago that's so important today as I was doing research right, St. John Eudes lived in that century and his contemporaries, Vincent de Paul and Francis de Sales, were canonized before the end of that century but St. John Eudes was about 300 years late. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so why is that? You can see this also looking at the numbers. When he died, there were 60 to 70 members, including seminarians, in six cities in France. A hundred years later, it had mostly doubled in 15 cities. A hundred years after that, it had shrunk. Right? So... so but then you go a hundred years more, all of a sudden St. John Hughes is canonized, there's 450 incorporated, almost 120 seminarians, 10 bishops, and we're in three continents. Mm-hmm. So there's this real sense of, of kind of St. John Hughes is laying low, and then he took off. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and the numbers have gone up since then. So our first question is, what happened during the gap? that gap of 300 years. And Bremond, Henry Bremond, is going to tell us something about St. John Newt's personality. 
Jansenism was a key piece, and they made it really personal. And Le Dossier Noir is a hundred pages of slander against St. John Eudes. It's really juicy. Um, and then there was a the French Revolution, which Father John talked about in a history book that he wrote that we're going to publish next. It's a hundred pages. It's really good. So then we'll break. Um, then there's the happy ending. The second part is is going to be all of the external forces that brought St. John Eudes to canonization. It's missing a whole piece on the internal forces. Father Angela Doré was the postulator for the cause, the very first one, and he was the superior general. That's not in here, but there's always more work to do. Yeah. And, and then it ends with him uh, looking to be a doctor of the church. Okay, questions before we go? Good. Okay. So, Henry Bremen wrote seven volumes of the history of religious thought in France. And he's the one that invented the term the French School of Spirituality. Okay. He wrote it in the early 1900s, right after St. John Eudes was beatified. And volume three, he has a great chapter on St. John Eudes. And he says, the fame of Father Eudes has progressed somewhat slowly. It had against it two big things. His humility, he was destitute of all vanity, literary vanity even, and he was very attached to his native province, which is where he did almost all of his missions in Normandy and Brittany and Coutances. But there was also a keen and tenacious Jansenist hostility. So, that's on page 497, so we can follow along if we need to. I thought it was kind of funny. Do you want to read it? Go for it. Frankly speaking, he appears to me neither attractive nor fascinating. Francis de Sales and Vincent de Paul and many others have made us critical. We expect everything in the saints, gifts of nature as well as those of grace. <laughs> this, so this is from a member of the French Academy whose full-time job for the rest of his life is history. Right? Full-time, lifelong job. Um, and Bremond was read by this guy, Henri Daniel Rope, who explains what he means about Francis de Sales and Vincent de Paul. Um, he quotes St. Jane Francis de Chantal, who says, Francis de Sales was so good-looking he would often distract his female listeners during his homilies and they wouldn't hear anything he was saying because <laughs> he was that good looking. Um, and Vincent de Paul was incredibly charming. And he was not a big city guy. He came from the, the countryside. But he was everybody's favorite in the king's court. And he wrote 10,000 letters in his life. And, and all of that was managing human interactions and relationships and he was he was that kind of man, he was real charismatic and charming um, they were also both incredibly holy but these were, were social graces they were human gifts that helped them be canonized by the end of the century so, go ahead there were nuances beyond his rustic understanding which the saints just named instinctively grasped. They were not holier than, than Pierre Eudes, but 
less subject than he to awkwardness, whether of heart, mind, or pen. To me, that gives me a lot of hope. (laughs) (laughs) So you can be awkward and be holy. Um, so over the course of his description of St. John Eudes he calls him rustic and angular awkwardly serious ardent and impetuous but when he he says be careful not to misunderstand rough it's not he was a a rough person he just had rough edges he was not wanting in kindliness or even tenderness and later you should read um, in the 500s here he has an exchange of letters between John Eudes and his best friend one of his best friends, Madame de Camille and it's so funny because she's like poking fun at him mm. and and he's responding like like all serious and, <laughs> and no, 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 this is this is important stuff it's really cool <laughs> and, and Bremont gives this um, commentary in between kind of pulling out fun details he also says he lived a strained, rigid, and persecuted life, was neither beloved or universally obeyed. And for that, he talks about the con- conflict between St. John Eudes and Mother Patin, who helped him found Our Lady of Charity. He, he tried to visit one time, and she locked the door, so he kept on knocking until she opened the door, slapped him in the face, and slammed it again for the convent that he helped found. Right, but Bremen points out that John Eudes, even with all of this persecution, sometimes from his own collaborators, he didn't try to overpower them, and and so it was a real, there was a real humility in Saint John Eudes as well. But this thing of rustic, I wanted to figure out more of what he meant, and from. When we lived in Normandy, every time you would mention it, people would, would talk about cows, or they would moo, or there's an expression in Normandy, it's vachement, it's, it's like a cow, it's vachement cool, it's, it's cool like a cow. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, when you think of Normandy, which is where he was from, you think of cows, they have their own very rural kind of backwoodsy accent, and a whole bunch of small towns. And it's right next to Brittany, which is, they, I think they still have right of succession or something. Just like Texas. Ah. Right? So, so that's the connection. Like, when people thought Normandy, that part of France, kind of like how we saw people from Texas. Okay. Um, and since all of the, especially in that era, everything important that happened in France happened in Paris he was not in the in crowd during his lifetime like Francis de Sales and, and Vincent de Paul were. Gotcha. So we're going to kind of leave it at that because Father John has a presentation on St. John Hute's personality that he's going to do in a couple of weeks. Anything before we go? Okay. So then it comes to Jansenism. Go ahead. During his lifetime, they belittled him by every means in their power, and when dead, they did their best to prevent justice being done to him. 
for more than two centuries, a ruthless and well-organized censure kept guard over every avenue of religious history in France. They have their Inquisition, the Index of Forbidden Books, and their Apologists. It's intense. Yeah. Now remind me again what the Jansenist... Ah, there we go. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was founded by Cornelius Jansen, who was a Dutch bishop, okay. and actually not a heretic. Um, as he was writing, he kept saying to everyone around him, if any of this is contradicted by the church, burn it, don't publish it. Uh, I want to die in communion with the church, and he did. Um, but what he was writing took St. Augustine's work, took the dark side of it, and took it way too far, um, till it was something like a Catholic Calvinism. Human nature is radically corrupt and depraved. There's nothing as human beings we can do that's good. Uh, and it's in fact impossible not to sin. We offend God even without knowing it. We commit mortal sins unintentionally and offend God. Uh, and he pulled St. Augustine on predestination way too far that there are a few people who are irresistibly saved. So regardless of what you do, you're safe. Gotcha. Right. Um, so in 1641, three years after he died, his book was published and was immediately condemned by Rome. But then it gets crazy. Because the second generation of Jansenists were the real heretics. They were, found, they were based in Paris at the Abbey of Port Royal. So the abbess and her brother, a theologian, and the abbot of saint Siran, who was pastor of a parish somewhere else, but he spent all his time in Paris. Okay. Um, they published the Augustinius. Jensen, or Arnaud also published a book against frequent communion. Because we are constantly committing mortal sins, whether we want to or not, we should not receive communion unless the church makes us do it because it's such a sacrilege for people like us <laughs> to receive communion. And, and what was most important in their taking root was their strategy. They had this really fancy, really prestigious monastery in, in Paris, and they would invite members of the court and bishops and judges and ministers of state to come make a retreat and tell them that they were part of the elect. Right? So, so you guys are the ones being irresistibly saved. I mean, look, you came here to the retreat, so you must be one of the elect. Mm -hmm. right? and there were even some of the superiors of Biru's oratory that went on retreats there too. And, right? So that really gave them a very strong political hold. So in 1653, when things really heated up with Augustinius, they made a list of five ideas from it that were clearly heretical. Mm -hmm. These are kind of squished into four, but some of God's commandments are in fact impossible for us to keep. Fallen man has no ability either to accept or to resist grace. Salvation is given to some regardless of their will. And this one, the blood of Christ was not shed for all. He says, for you and for many he doesn't say for all. Right? And it's going to come back. No, okay. Checks. Um, 
so what the, what's the the, res, the reaction? Arnaud sends back a technicality. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, those those are those are heretical, but you can't say that they're in the book because I don't think they are. Hmm. And and in fact, the church's jurisdiction. They can say what is just and what is not. They can say what's mm-hmm. sinful and what is not. But the Pope cannot decree that this is in the book or not, because that's fact. The Pope has mm-hmm. no le- no jurisdiction to legislate fact. Huh. It's such a lawyer thing to do. Yeah. And he had the support of 120 theologians, mostly from the Sorbonne in Paris, and four bishops. So then it, it, it keeps heating up. The Pope tries to condemn it again. 56, 57, 64, 67. He didn't do it. I mean, it yeah. didn't work. Yeah. The Pope was sending letters, this is terrible, this is heretical, this is not good, and no one was paying any attention to it. So, so the French king started getting nervous about, well, is the Pope trying to what's he going to do next? March in his armies and try to take over my church and my kingdom? And and the French church versus the Roman church was actually a hot button. Right? It didn't help that he had Jansenist ministers of state. And so, and then 19 more bishops come out in defense of Arnaud, and the nuncio finally caves. He says, okay, the Pope has ordered that every bishop and clergyman sign this declaration that they condemn the heresies in the Augustinians. But he left the loophole that they don't have to agree that it is actually in the Augustinians. Ah, uh, okay. So in 1669, the, the Pope said, we've now been reconciled with the people who call themselves Jansenists. They've agreed that this is heresy. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it was him caving and admitting defeat. This is uh, an illustration of the for many or for all. Mm-hmm. Um, Jansenists had their own crucifixes that they would make. They thought Jesus, with his arms out horizontally, looked too all-embracing. Mm-hmm. It looked like he's reaching out for everybody, and really, he's he's playing hard to get. He's only for a few, and so they would have Jesus with his arms up. Mm-hmm. There's a whole article in in a dictionary about Jansenist crucifixes. Okay. So, Jansenism stayed in power until the French Revolution. In 1718, there was another big attempt from Rome to try and quell the heresy, because they were getting bigger, and the Archbishop of Paris, who was a cardinal, 18 bishops and about 3,000 priests bit back and and still resisted. So throughout the whole 1700s, after that, they kind of went underground because there were the convulsionists who were trying to prove that Jansenists were a saint, Jansenist priests were saints, and so they would hang out in the cemetery and someone would claim a miraculous healing, another would claim a vision, and then they started all convulsing together, and that gave them some bad PR. Yeah. So they stopped using 
the name of Jansenism after that. They kind of went underground. Mm -hmm. But they all kept this idea of moral and sacramental rigorism. Severity and corporal mortification equals virtue. Because we're constantly offending God, we have to constantly whip ourselves to, to try to make up for it so that we can receive communion once a year like the church orders us to. And then the anything that had to do with emotion or the heart or mercy was vile sentimentality. Um, Father John says you still see a lot of this around sometimes today. The moral and the sacramental rigorism especially, you get everything's a mortal sin and Anyway, so then in the Review Apologetique, it talks about St. John Eudes and the Jansenists and the conflict. And it says St. John Eudes' devotion, full of love and trust in Jesus and his mother, seemed to present itself as a living protest against the depressing doctrines of Jansenius and Spock. So it kind of, you come into the Eudists and you always hear about Jansenism, Jansenism. Yeah. It's a little more in depth, yeah. Yeah. So then it gets personal. Do you want to... Any thoughts before we go? No. Okay. This part was juicy, I don't know. I had fun reading it. For the Jansons. Or this part. Yeah, the personal slander. Um, Father Jean-Rémy Coté put together this document in 99 of 100 pages of, of stuff. And it really got bad in the 70s. Oratorian Jansenists in Rome sent letters to get uh, John Eudes persecuted by the king. They told the king that he was more loyal to the pope than he was to the king. Um, and he was this close to being beheaded for it. Uh, in 1974, a Jansenist priest published a letter to a doctor of the Sorbonne about the terrible heresies that John Eudes was was spreading. Mm -hmm. And then this one we're going to read from the Catechism of the Visionaries is crazy. And then they even changed the Grand Historical Dictionary. Um, yeah, we'll get there too. And then at the end, Father Cote gives us the role played by the popes in St. John Eudes' Canada. That'll be after our break. So... The Catechism of the Visionaries had a nickname for John Eudes. They called him Father Patelin, which means small town, backwoods, middle of nowhere town. Okay. So like Father Podunk, mm -hmm. Father Boondocks. Um, and they wrote it like it was... They took his Catechism of the Mission uh -huh. and tweaked it <laughs> and made it the Catechism of the Visionaries. And you can tell it's, it's, it's imitating the style exactly. Mm-hmm. Teo, do you want to read that? I think it's good. What is the sign of the visionaries? It is a way our good father, Odunk, teaches us to bless ourselves. How is it made? Giving a deep sigh, we bow our heads sweetly and raise our eyes lovingly to heaven, saying, Long live the adorable heart of my divine mistress, Marie de Valais. And may heaven disperse the chance in this statement. <laughs> Not the sign of the cross, the sign of the visionaries. Uh-huh. They rewrote the creed. 
universal governor of the world, gifted and ruled by the revelations. I believe in Marie de Valais, his devoted goddess, whose will was changed into the will of the Eternal Father. I believe that Jesus Christ took her flesh and was transubstantiated into her as she was into him. I believe in the eternal union of the congregation and in the destruction of the Jansenists. Amen. Wow. So they wrote and published this. Oh, wow. Uh, it keeps going. <laughs> the, and, and, and this part, I mean, it wasn't just Marie de Valet. That was a major part of their of their slander. Mm-hmm. But it was also, may the riches you desire us to have come, give us this day some nice visions, and forgive us if we don't get a lot of money, because we only forgive those who give their money to us. Deprive us not of rich benefactors, and deliver us from Jansenists. Mm-hmm. What the heck? Yeah. And, and so what... The document o- uncovered is that these documents actually came out when St. John Yude's secretary, who was a young seminarian, leaked them to Father Dufour, who was the Jansenist. Mm-hmm. And, and you can actually tell exactly where they got their ideas, because Odd, the seminarian, was the one who transcribed the biography of Marie de Valet. Mm-hmm. So he, he wrote a book that thick... John Yutes would give dictation, and and Odd would write it down. And they had a letter from Odd to to St. John Yutes, and this guy was a little wacky. He thought you had to have a paid benefice in order to get into heaven. Hmm. So, so he said, look, my vocation is to be a priest. I'm not a priest unless I get paid. Therefore, if I don't get paid, I won't fulfill my vocation, then I'll be in in mortal sin, and if I die, I'll go straight to hell. Because I'm not paid to be a priest, I'm not fulfilling my vocation. Hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. he was he was still in formation. Yeah. He was coming from, clearly, a lack of any kind of formation. But that's where you can see the emphasis on money, the emphasis on visions, the emphasis on Marie de Valet. Mm-hmm. The Jansenist pulled it straight from Odd's twisted understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he transcribed that much of Marie de Valet and all of the visions and revelations, it'd be easy for him to think that that's yeah. everything St. John Yutes was about. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But this was published publicly by the reigning party in the church. Mm-hmm. They they came up with some stuff of their own though. It wasn't just oh they misunderstood. No, they invented some plenty of their own slander to the Jansenists. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in the the catechism it says the next thing he's going to do is create a confraternity in honor of the fertile ear of Mary. You know, well we're honoring her heart. Why not her feet or her ears or, mm. or right? They thought it was ridiculous mm-hmm. to honor the heart. Why would that? Yeah. Yeah. Let's honor her gallbladder. So, here's the last piece we're going to look at, is the Grand Historical Dictionary by Moriari. He was a diocesan priest, wrote 
20 volumes and it was a classic. Apparently everybody knew it, knows it. Mm -hmm. And in 1674, he wrote a really nice, very complimentary entry on St. John Eudes and the Eudes Valleys. But it was republished in 1740 by a Calvinist minister. I'm not sure. How big. <laughs> right. You know. Um, <laughs> but in the interest of, you know, academic, I don't know, he added a section that St. John Eudes, by the way, had been accused of ambition, duplicity, and fanaticism. And he quotes three Jansenist documents, including the the letter to the Sorbonne. I'm not sure if he does the Catechism of the Visionaries. Um, then, in 1759, the 20th edition, that tells you how popular this thing is. And the, this 20th edition is the one that most libraries still have. was republished by a Jansenist who left the section about the accusations and took out everything positive. Right? Uh So, since 1759, the dictionary, as said St. John Eudes' Catechism of the Visionaries type stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's what he meant, that's what Bremen meant when he talked about censorship. Mm -hmm. So, that's the Jansenists in a nutshell. Before we get the last piece, crazy, Mm -hmm. crazy. Okay, so the French Revolution. Father John is going to go over some of this too when he talks about the Eudes martyrs. So we're going to go quick. Okay. Okay. Um, It's funny that it was kind of the Jansenist attitudes that encouraged a lot of the revolution here because the people in the upper class were being told, oh, by the way, you're the elite. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, in 1789, the people, normal people, got tired of that. They form a mob and take over the Bastille, which was a royal prison with nobody in it, actually, but <laughs> it was the first time that anyone dared to challenge the royal power. Mm-hmm. And they still celebrate it, like we have the 4th of July here. So they established the National Assembly. Um, they bi- abolished tithing was required by law. They took over all church property because it was the clergy that was perpetrating a lot of these, mm-hmm. a lot of these injustices. Mainly with Jansenist ideals, though. I saw an article about the Jansenist roots of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. I didn't read it. But someone's studied that, mm-hmm. and it'd be an interesting thing. Yeah, to well, it'd be interesting, because that's what we hear all the time. Well, the church, you know, was a big, you know, cause of why, you know, the French Revolution had to happen, and, you know. But it'd be interesting to see, okay, is it, was it the church, meaning the Italian, you know, or was it the heretical ideas? That would make a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Especially since the Jansenists were based in Paris. Mm-hmm. And that's where all the ruling class was. Yeah. Cool. There's material for a paper there. Mm-hmm. So, in 1792, all of the papist priests who wouldn't swear allegiance to France instead of Rome mm-hmm. were either executed or deported. 
nice, nice revolution. It got really anti-clerical. Yeah. Um, so in 1972, the CGM was decapitated. Father Hebert was arrested on August 11th, 200 and, and put in prison in St. Joseph of Carmel, which is a church now on the campus of the Catholic University, oddly enough. Um, in the space of three or four hours, 210 priests that were imprisoned in that church were hacked to pieces one at a time, including Father Hebert and one or two other Judists. Uh, there were 63 priests that were put prisoner, made prisoner in a ship, and it was terrible living conditions, it was really unsanitary, we had a Judas priest there too, and they died on their way to South America where there was a penal colony to hold all these dangerous treasonous papists. So, out of 152, about half of the clergy swore an oath to, to be faithful to the National Church. Six or seven of the, of the 150 Judas did. So, four, seven? Sorry, when you compare half of, and you only had six or seven out of 152. Yeah. And in fact, one of the martyrs from September 2nd swore the oath, swore it publicly, and then took it back publicly, and then was sent to jail, and then was martyred. Yeah. Uh, a handful of intrepids. There's someone that wrote a... In Father John's history on it, he talks about the intrepids, is what they were called, the ones running the underground church. And the Third Order Eudistines were a major part of that, but that's a different presentation. And we don't know what happened to the rest of them. Um, seven years later, Napoleon ended the revolution. He reestablished Catholicism because it was a really good way to keep the people organized. Um, not because he was pious. Yeah. Uh, but he had his own rules, he, had, he selected the bishops, um, and he still wasn't a big fan of religious orders, either. So Father Charles Blanchard had some of the coolest story. He uh, was a vicar general of a diocese in Brittany. He ran the church incognito during two years. The guillotine was on the, the town square, and he lived in a basement underneath the town square. Anyway, and he meets, as far as he knew, he was the only surviving Judist. He met a school teacher who wanted to be a priest, and in 1826, 30 years after we were decapitated, mm -hmm. he sees who else is around. So of the 152 Judists, 30 members were still alive in 1826. Eight of them came to the General Council, and they were mostly very old, they were very tired, they were traumatized, they just wanted to go back to work. So they elected Blanchard as the Superior General, and four years later, <laughs> there were seven members, including four seminarians. Wow. So three priests, four seminarians. And then one of them dies. <laughs> I guess there were four, and then Father Blanchard died. 
So, you wonder why no one's heard of the Yudist Fathers. <laughs> And, and ten years later, we're up to 17. By 37 years after that, we had less than 50 priests, but Pope Pius IX says, hey, let's make St. John Utes a saint. <laughs> or let's make John Utes a saint. So that's the exciting cliffhanger. to think that with less than 50 priests the cause for canonization yeah would open. yeah yeah St. John Eudes wasn't everyone's favorite during his life not because he wasn't holy he was, he was a little backwards alright he was a little awkward okay <laughs> anyway so and then after his death the congregation wasn't well known, not because it wasn't holy, not because it wasn't important, because the Jansenists <laughs> were specifically against it. So here's the, the part where providence comes in and, and changes things. And actually, it's St. Mary Euphrasia's fault. That lady. So in 1838, the very first Good Shepherd Sisters house outside of France was founded. It was the first non-French house, and it was in Rome. And then in Rome, Cardinal Ferretti found out about them and begged for them to be sent to Imbala. That would have been the second house. Mm -hmm. So in 1848, Mother Euphrasia sends three nuns to Imbala, and they didn't have a convent yet, so they lived at the bishop's house. The next year, Cardinal Ferretti was elected Pope. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> um, and five years later, a Yudist happened to be in Rome for an audience, and the Pope says, Oh, you're a Yudist. I know your good father Yudes well. I'm reading his life right now. He was a man who knew the things of God, full of zeal and virtues. He served Jesus and his church well. How did he get that book? Through the Good Shepherd Sisters, yeah. right? Yeah. You know? Um, so there's, you know, there's like 40-something Yudas priests at this point. In 67, another Yudas stands up at, a, at an audience, and the Pope waxes poetical about how cool St. John Yudes is, and then he says his cause for canonization must begin as soon as possible. <laughs> so next year, Father Le Doré was named Pastor Less than 50 priests. Mm -hmm. uh, that same year, St. Mary Euphrasia died, but she has been quoted as saying that even in heaven, one of the first things she's going to ask from the Lord is the canonization of St. John Gotcha. So, she's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so, this Pope, in, 19, in 1874, declared St. John Eudes venerable, <laughs> skipping somewhere, right? <laughs> he 
his complete works hadn't been collected, they hadn't been all read, and there was supposed to be a ten-year delay between introducing the cause and being declared anything. Huh. Okay. Right? Yeah. That's cool. He passed away, I think, the following year. So Leo XIII was the next pope who also helped. In 1881, the devil's advocate is supposed to come up with all of the possible uh, arguments against. So he accused St. John Eudes of Gallicanism. That's the French church over the Roman church. Hmm. Uh, that whole debacle from the oratorians and mm-hmm. sending letters from Rome and... Mm-hmm needed to be cleared up. And Vatican I had just declared Gallicanism a heresy. Okay. That, I think, the previous year. So, Leo XIII saw the dark clouds of anti-clericalism gathering in France. This is leading up to the 1903 illegal, (coughs) illegal religious orders. And so he wanted to make new saints in France to help counterbalance the anti-clericalism, and he had St. John Eudes specifically in mind. Okay. This is also the Pope, consequentially, that dedicated the whole world to the Sacred Heart. He did that when, after Blessed Maria Drost, who was a Good Shepherd sister, mm-hmm. sent him a letter saying Virgin. that the Lord wants the world consecrated Sacred Heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a fan of the Sacred Heart, he knew so as soon as this this accusation came, it was really big, it was really serious, and Leo XIII cut through all the, all the bureaucracy that could have been. He said, okay, right now, I'm naming this set of cardinals to investigate this and get an answer to me post-haste. Okay. Uh, the next year, John Eutz was declared free of all heresy. Uh, so Leo XIII helped overcome one of the biggest hurdles that could have been against St. John Hughes. And it was him that first wrote John Hughes is a father, doctor, and apostle of devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and Mary. Which the next pope confirmed and explained. Mm -hmm. The next pope was Pius X, and at this point, the postulator for the cause had to change. Father Mallet get an audience with the Pope anytime he wanted. <laughs> he didn't have to go through all of the, the permissions and then all the um, and it was Pius X that wrote the bull for the beatification of Saint John Hughes. What is the bull? It's the papal bull, it's the letter declaring that oh, okay. he's canonized or beatified in this case. so he he took Leo the thirteenth's phrase and he explained what it meant. He's father because da, 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 da. he's doctor because. Gotcha. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Has that letter been translated to English? Just out of curiosity. I, sh- I think I started it. I know. Okay. We'll look. It's in Latin. It's in Latin. We got it in French. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Right. Yeah, we have a. We actually have it. Uh huh. We have it, and I think I translated it into English. Nope, nope, I didn't finish it. But we have five pages of it. There we go. And I have the rest of it. Okay. So, I'll get there. You could do that tonight. No. Okay. So, 
there, in the document there wasn't much explanation about why Pius X was so much a fan of St. John Eudes. Mm -hmm. But Benedict XV used to be Nuncio in Colombia, which is where Father Mallet worked okay. before he was named postulator. So he had known Father Mallet before he'd become Pope. Mm -hmm. And so he also received Father Mallet without any need for protocol. Okay. And there's this funny part in the documentary where it talks about one of the things that helped uh, it's like there was like even a pun in there helped promote the aroma of sanctity uh. of St. John Hughes <laughs> was the aroma of Colombian coffee. It was a gift. <laughs> because Father Mallet would give it as a thank you. Everyone from like the doorman to the secretary to the would cardinal to the Pope himself <laughs> would get Colombian coffee. <laughs> so we have coffee to thank for. <laughs> the There's Colombian coffee. Okay. Then we come to the big day. 1925, St. John Hughes is finally canonized, except when the papal bull is published, officially, someone had conspicuously removed the phrase Father, Doctor, and Apostle huh. of Devotion. There was just like a gap where there used to be. Hmm. It's like they had scratched it out. So it wasn't even like... <laughs> no, it wasn't even like tweaked. It was just uh -huh. like like eraser marks just on the page hmm. kind of thing. Um... Yeah, so so after all that work, it just right, and it wasn't until two years later that I guess there was a lot more need for for protocol with Pius XI. Mm -hmm. Two years later, we got a, an audience with the Pope, and he's like, "What? Why did you wait until today? Mm -hmm. If you had told me before, we could have gone after the people that did it. Mm -hmm. Now, what are we gonna do?" Yeah, and it actually he he really wanted to do justice to St. John Newton, so they immediately published a correction and then he was also working with the Office for the Liturgy on the Office of the Sacred Heart mm -hmm. the Liturgy Hours and he's like, well make sure that St. John Newton is in there at the very beginning mm -hmm. he originally wasn't in the plan to be, wow. but Pius XI said, well, we gotta make, make sure he's in there mm -hmm. and then He's, instead of making him normally you're a saint for your local country mm -hmm. before you become a saint for the universal church okay he put him straight into it just put it into the universal church okay right Joan of Arc I think is a saint just for the country of France hmm. really yeah okay. her feast is only celebrated it's so only on the liturgical calendar for uh, France the yeah interesting for the rest yeah like enough yeah. I mean I that that just happened Hmm. It'll work. Yeah. Yeah. In the yeah. But it's not. Yeah. But it's, it's an optional. But for them, it's. But for them, it's just like a solemnity. Yeah. yeah. So, Pius Eleventh made Saint John use a solemnity in the whole church. Okay. Or, or, or not a, but a something for the whole church. Yeah. 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 Put them on the calendar, and then they were, uh, they were getting statues for Saint Peter's Basilica, mm -hmm. and he says, "I want one of Saint John Eudes too." Hmm. So it's because that part was scratched out in the original yeah. bowl that, that he got the idea. Uh-huh. St. Mary Euphrasia is in there, too. Oh, yeah. And it's not, it's not just because the Pope this said it, yeah. but this helps him recognize mm -hmm. the importance. Mm -hmm. So, 
when it's the cross that followed St. John. He was all through his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it ended up in quite a resurrection. Um, so then we come to the, the next step. In 37, 10 years after this, the Superior General asked, he sent out a letter describing St. John Eudes as a prophet of the heart and mm-hmm. the Sacred Heart Doctrine and sent out a letter to 450 or he sent out a letter and he got 450 replies from cardinals, bishops, etc. saying yes, St. John Eudes should be a doctor of the church. Mm. Uh, then World War II happened and nothing happened there. Um, although St. John Eudes 18 years later was put in the encyclical for the Sacred Heart. I have a slide on that. Okay. In 1960, the Superior General of that time asked John Twenty-Third about St. John Eudes being a doctor of the church. Pope said, yeah, it should happen. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to take personal interest. I just have this council I need to open first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that kind of fizzled. Yeah. But then in 2001, the Canadian bishops got together and, and said, hey, why, are, why is this not happening? Mm-hmm. And so they asked Father Michel Girard, the Superior General then, and he brought it to the General Assembly. They talked about it in 2007. Father John was there. 2012, they said, okay, we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's brand new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the same time, it's been around since. It's, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So, what is it about Saint John Eudes' teaching that's so important? He would be a doctor of the church. Mm-hmm. We're shifting from history, and now we're going into doctrine, spirituality, right? Being a disciple of Berul, Berul had a beautiful Christocentrism. Everything revolved around the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. And John Eudes inherited that perfectly. He has a missionary approach to ministry and priesthood. This is the bullet points for chapter 7. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, the missionary approach to ministry and priesthood, that's something you're hearing a lot about from Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. Right? Not, not normal pastoral care. We need missionary pastoral care. Yeah. Right? Hey, look at that. Christian life in a new evangelization context. St. John Eudes lived 50 years after a council, just like mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. He lived in a time, I have a quote later on about that, when everyone needed to know about the beauty of their baptism. Mm-hmm. He talked about it, we're talking about it. So, mercy is another huge theme. It starts with God is merciful. So then we as a church should be merciful, and every individual should live mercy. Kind of. uh-huh. that, that movement is another really important piece. Mm-hmm. The intimate link between Mariology and Christology. Mm-hmm. Christology as how <laughs> the importance that Jesus has to us is also intimately linked to the importance Mary has for us. Because uh-huh. she's the example of everything that's going to happen to us. Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's, that's unique to St. John Hughes. Too. Okay. An everyday mysticism. Normally you think mysticism, you think something rarefied, something mm-hmm. out there. Well, he's got it 
in the everyday, something that's both deep, mm-hmm. but it's also discreet. It's something that that uh, doesn't make you ask a lot of questions, doesn't make you wonder too much, mm-hmm. doesn't make you uncomfortable. And then the heart as a doctrinal synthesis. It's the heart that summarizes all of this and founds it in baptism. Not just as membership in the Catholic club, but baptism as being united to Christ. So that's kind of an overview for the whole rest of the month. And hopefully we'll go unpacking all of this Mm -hmm. one bit at a time. really interesting to look at uh, in the context of the Holy Spirit saving John Yudes for this time, how he's so important for these themes that are really current. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of, there's a list of non-Yudist scholars of St. John Yudes. Okay. So in 1956, Pope Pius XII wrote an s- encyclical on the Sacred Heart. And he used St. John Yudes' idea of the three hearts. Mary loved Jesus with her three hearts, her bodily heart, her, her mm-hmm. spiritual heart, which is like mental, and her uh, divine heart. Mm-hmm. And there's a great article, I need to find it again, about how you can't found an encyclical on private revelation. Mm-hmm. It has to be founded on scripture, on theology, on, on solid doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so... Ariatis Aquas leaned a whole bunch on St. John Hughes because mm-hmm. he had done all of the scriptural theological yeah. legwork. Yeah. So there's, you could do a lot of exploration on that. Mm-hmm. The Bible of the Sacred Heart, published in 2007 in French and in 2009 in Spanish, has 45 pages on St. John Hughes. Mm-hmm. One of the pages is about John Hughes and Ariatis Aquas. Okay. I'm sure you could do a lot more than one page on it, though. Uh-huh. And then the bulk of it is this chapter, 30 pages long, on how to recenter catechesis on of the Sacred Heart. Mm-hmm. And St. John Eudes is a precursor of recentering catechesis. Interesting. Okay. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All kinds of opportunity there for digging deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, but he put it also in the context of solving a crisis in devotion to the Sacred Heart. Mm. Um, Harriet Isakwas used that language too, that there's this idea that the heart is nothing but sentimental drivel mm-hmm. and crying mm-hmm. with Jesus because he's crying for the day. And he says, no, it's a lot more than that. He also says in the encyclical, it's a lot more than making reparation for the sins of mankind, mm-hmm. which was the focus of Margaret Mary Alacoque. Okay. He says, no, it needs to be founded on the Trinity, it needs to be founded on Scripture, on mm-hmm. the Incarnation, all of which is in St. John theology of it. So, a bunch of room there to expand. This one was a surprise we found this year, that Vatican II asked for a reform of moral theology. Okay. They said we've been getting too legalistic. Mm-hmm. The surprise is that Cardinal Schoenborn, who edited the Catechism, personally inserted St. John Eudes into the Catechism in the summary of moral theology mm-hmm. and how to reform it. Okay. Um, in 1996, he gave a retreat, Cardinal Schoenborn, for John Paul II, 
and the introduction to the book that was published afterwards was written by Cardinal Ratzinger. Oh, uh-huh. And it's called Loving the Church. I have it over in the mm-hmm. library. And he quotes St. John Hughes, mm-hmm. the exact same quote he put into the catechism. Okay. Right? Uh-huh. And then, in 2002, he publishes a book on contemporary Christology, mm-hmm. and he uses that exact same quote. Now, where is Cardinal Schoenborn now? He is he still? Mm-hmm. He's still alive. Still <laughs> Just that. Uh-huh. Father Camilo talked to him and and said, you know, I'm trying to get St. John used to be a doctor of the church. Cardinal Schoenborn says, oh, good. I put him in the catechism. <laughs> he, said, he said, I was personally responsible for him. putting him in the catechism. Huh. Right? Uh-huh. And then here he is talking to JP2 and Benedict XVI. Using. Right? Yeah. And, and so you can thumb through those books if you want. I have them both. Okay. Right? Um, this is another definite Udist opening. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the one that Pope Francis recommended. Yeah, okay, yeah. exactly. So in his first Wednesday audience, he says, I'm going to recommend this book. It's a good book. It's done me a lot of good. <laughs> the Essence of the Gospel and the Key to Christian Life. It was published in German in 2012, and last month it was published in English. Okay. And it's in the mail on the way here. It's in Spanish. It's in Spanish also. It's in Spanish, yeah. I've read, mm-hmm. I've read a few excerpts of it in Spanish. I got it on interlibrary loan in Spanish. In Spanish? Well, I had to give it back because it was an interlibrary loan. I thought that was your But I have it as an e-book now. In Spanish? In English. Uh, anyway, so he talks about if you approach God from a philosophical point of view, you normally end up with his primary attribute is he's the lawmaker. Mm-hmm. He's the regulator. He's His primary attribute is justice. Mm-hmm. And then the stuff in scripture about mercy, God's mercy, you kind of have to work around justice and kind so of... So that mercy fits in. So that mercy yeah. fits in. You have to use a shoehorn. Mm-hmm. But he says, well, if you go from the perspective of what God revealed to us about himself in scripture, mm-hmm. his primary attribute is mercy. Mm-hmm. And he's so systematic and complete. He goes through a history of mercy in philosophy. He goes through a history of mercy in theology. He goes through this century's absolute crisis in regards to mercy after Auschwitz, mm-hmm. after uh, September 11th. Uh, anyway, and he says, look, it's the mercy and the tenderness of God and there's all kinds of echoes between that and St. John Eudes. Mm-hmm. Especially the things that Father Ihinio down in Ecuador mm-hmm. talks about, the tenderness of God. He's absolutely focused on God as a tender, loving Father. Mm-hmm. That's a lot different than the divine lawmaker. Yeah. Like tenderness and lawmaker don't go in the same No, no, no. Right? Except in the context of fatherhood. I mean, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. But then the yeah, lawmaking mm-hmm. is at the service of the yeah. love that he has. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and Mother Antonia's document, she wrote The Heart and Spirit of the Yudas Servant of the Eleventh Hour. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I'm about to, I'm almost ready to print it out. But 
it's so full of tenderness <laughs> and and says look Jesus is tender with us we need to be tender with everyone especially the sinners um, combats a lot of the moral rigorism of the Jansenists yeah. by the way yeah which we're still recovering from anyway so it does not mention St. John Hughes but you sure could do a lot of connecting. I mean, there's an opening for some beautiful contributions between these two. Mm -hmm. And then this pair of quotes. I think this is the last slide. The new evangelization. St. John Eudes wanted to cry tears of blood because he saw so many persons who, after having become by baptism children of God, the members of Jesus Christ, and living temples of the Holy Ghost, live as infidels and pagans rather than as true Christians. Fast forward 300 years, and John Paul II, Saint John Paul II, mm -hmm. says almost like it's almost verbatim the same. Mm -hmm. Right? Entire groups of the baptized lost a living sense of the faith, no longer consider themselves members of the Church of Living Life, far removed from Christ's gospel. What does it mean? Is it a new evangelization? Mm -hmm. So, these are exactly the same things. So there's a lot of room for harmonizing there. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So, that, that kind of, the idea was to kind of blow things open. Mm -hmm. The first part gives us a context as to why no one knows who we're talking about mm -hmm. when we say St. John mm -hmm. It's not their fault, and it's not because there's a lack of treasures. No. But right now, there's this huge explosion of the exact treasures that St. John Hughes talked about in these specific areas especially and there's so much that we could do to share the treasures of St. John Hughes with the people looking for material on new evangelization material on mercy material on the sacred heart so in summary, I think I already went over this. Mm -hmm. yeah. After his death, he was too merciful for the Jansenists. Mm -hmm. And we lost the CJM to the French Revolution for 30 years. That's why yeah. we're coming back from nothing. So he was saved for today, and the Holy Spirit is not done making his comeback. That's the story. 